Hello and welcome to the Parkview podcast. I'm Paul Hank, investment analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Usama Himani, CIO at the firm. The art market has always attracted the attention of investors as they look to diversify their portfolios with alternatives to the more traditional financial assets. More recently, the popularity of NFTs has drawn a lot of interest into the space. To help us better understand the world of art curation through a modern lens, our guest this week is Martine d'Angelon Chatillon. Martine was a founding member of the National Gallery Trust and later spent many years at the Rothschild Foundation and the Whitechapel Gallery in London. In 2004, she co-founded the Thomas Dane Gallery, expanding the gallery's film, video and digital art program. In 2020, she founded MDAC, a production company developing socially and politically urgent projects with the world's leading cultural institutions, galleries and artists. Through her advisory division, Martine works with private individuals to create collections as well as to guide their philanthropic activities in the cultural sector. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. It's always a pleasure to hear your views. I think for a lot of people who are familiar with the art world, but but may not be involved uh, extensively in the art world, maybe you can tell us a bit about the type of work that, that you do. Sure. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here um, speaking to you. I think if I tell you about the work that I do, probably the best place to start is what I've done, um, because I've been in this world for um, a long time. And so I have uh, had experience in a kind of broad range of um, things in the art world. Um, so I've worked, let's say, I've worked for, the, for a private foundation. So the private foundation is a kind of entity in the art world as a sort of type. Uh, and I worked with the Rothschild Foundation for many, many years, um, particularly on large scale cultural projects, uh, whether they be the excavation of a city in southern Albania called Butrint through the Butrint Foundation um, to the building of the Supreme Court in Jerusalem, um, which was an architectural um, an architectural endeavor um, through to um, the restoration of Wadston Manor in Buckinghamshire, which was uh, a Rothschild mansion uh, built in late 19th century, which is full of really extraordinary treasures. Um, so I, I, I got a sense of, uh, of the, the world of private foundations through that. Um, in fact, prior to that, I worked uh, at the National Gallery in London um, in the very, very, very early days um, of uh, a moment which was driven by uh, Mrs. Thatcher in which museums really had to find a way of making their own money because she put a ceiling on what was to be distributed by the state. And so um, we pioneered at the National Gallery with uh, Lord Rothschild and the then director, Neil McGregor, um, a kind of new form, certainly for the, new, for the UK, of private philanthropy, um, I guess, institutions, of cultural institutions in the UK. And it was very, very much predicated on an American model, um, which, uh, which, which targeted private individuals who had made a lot of money and who um, were being given the opportunity to kind of assure a certain, a certain kind of legacy uh, through the endowment of certain, um, either cer- uh, certain works of art or certain capital projects that uh, happened in the gallery. So, um, and I also had another institutional ex- experience in being the head of development at the Whitechapel uh, Gallery, which is a rather remarkable gallery. Uh, it's the first 
purpose-built art gallery in Europe. Uh, and it was built by a priest in the early 19th century. Uh, and it differs from the National Gallery in the sense that it is uh, 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 an art, what we call a Kunsthalle, which is basically an art center with no collection. So it is an exhibition-driven um, public space in which the public is invited to look at um, a program of exhibitions over time. Um, and there too, uh, we had to raise private money in order to make it exist, although it is funded by the Arts Council to a certain extent. And uh, its proximity to the city um, was, was interesting um, from that point of view. It's, um, it's distance from what I would call the core, the heart of London, certainly at the time, was a problem. So the, there was a sort of, you know, there, it was a complicated, uh, it was a complicated endeavor. So, you know, we have private foundation, we have institutional, and then I, be I became very much more interested in contemporary art. And I founded with uh, a gentleman called Thomas Dane, uh, and another gentleman called Francois Chantalade, the Thomas Dane Gallery uh, in Mayfair, which um, was something that none of us had ever done. Um, but we began um, with, uh, or I guess inspired by the need of a certain artist called Steve McQueen um, to have representation in London uh, by a commercial gallery. So, uh, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, but, um, the, the gallery uh, is, plays a hugely important role. The quality of the gallery, the size of the gallery, the reach of the gallery, the intention of the gallery, the program of the gallery, the stable of the gallery does, is, is an incredibly important factor in you know, uh, the conversation we'll have further down the line, which is the creation of value. Um, and so I was there for 14 years and um, 12 years, 12 years. And, and over that time, we built a stable of artists um, that um, in a way became the, it became the, it reflected the values of the gallery, shall we say. And those artists were all, I would say, beyond trend. They were artists who worked in various media, whether it was painting or sculpture, installation, video, film, simulation, even gardens and nature, um, so soil and other materials. Um, and that was an extraordinary experience, particularly as it spanned a kind of fundamental change in, in, in the contemporary art world, which was that it was pretty uh, niche when, I, when we began, and, and it, it grew into a sort of phenomenal cultural thing, uh, as well as a huge financial entity. Um, so that's my sort of background. Now... I, I feel that um, I, uh, I, I have wanted to now kind of reflect my own interests by setting up on my own. And what I do is work with uh, the artists that I want um, alongside commercial galleries, so not against them. And I represent them uh, in other kinds of spheres that I think are developing, which is to work on major, major, the creation of major, major, usually hybrid works of art. So often combining film, music, performance, choreography, um, and uh, bringing into the world these works that a lot of galleries do not have the bandwidth or the interest um, to produce. So I do that. Uh, and that requires a lot of 
raising of money, whether it's philanthropic money or, or otherwise. Um, but I also, uh, and very importantly, build collections for private individuals. Uh, and I do that with all of the values that I've learned um, uh, in my past. And I advise them as well on their philanthropic um, giving, particularly in the world of art and culture. So that's what I do. This is very interesting. I think in particular, if I were to to basically map what you know your career into our world, which is the investment world, essentially your experience has been both on the buy and the sell side, but your work in advising uh, individuals or families on building collections is essentially buy side work. Absolutely. So, so this, you know, for for somebody who is maybe like myself, who who appreciates art, uh, but but really sees it more as, you know, to me, art is something that triggers some sort of aesthetic experience, right? I, I look at something, I like to see it. But if you were advising somebody else, you know, how do you how do you begin valuing art? You know, what are the components that you look for? Well, first of all, you have to pose your, 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 the question of what is value. Um, so, and I know you pose the question because you, you sit in a world which is, tends to be more financial than otherwise. But I would, I would argue that you have to look at them equally. So, so the value uh, kind of cleaves into two parts, which sometimes uh, coexist. One is what I would call curatorial. Um, and so, you know, it is a work of art, um, does it reflect its time? Um, does it remain relevant over time? Um, and one thing that I tend to find is a sort of mark of a great work of art is, is it a question? Is the, is the work of art a question rather than an answer? Because a question remains a place of um, investigation, curiosity, plurality, juiciness. Um, and, and, and an answer is an answer. You don't need to go on. You just, so you tend to find that works of art that, 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 that kind of exist over time from a, from a, from an aesthetic point of view, from a historic point of view, tend to be, uh, kind of unstable in terms of, um, what they mean, what they look like. Um, and I find that a, a kind of key thing. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, and the, the, in the curatorial um, value, there is, of course, you know, a, a difference in the long term and in the short term, as is the case in the in the financial sense. So, financial value, I mean, that's a complicated one. So, if you're, um, you know, if you're interested in the short term value of a work of art, you have, you have pose yourself some questions like, um, you know, is the artist on trend, quote unquote, is the artist well positioned, I guess, in the art world. And by that, I mean, is the artist represented by a gallery that is well recognized, that has credibility, that has other great artists. So is there a buzz around that gallery? Um, uh, you know, where is their market? You know, is the market of this of this artist in you know is it in in what I would call liquid or uh, or uh, affluent uh, economies? So uh, is it is it you know in the American market, the Chinese market, um, uh, the UK market? Those things really matter. Um, uh, and, and I would say that someone who's interested in the financial value of something short term is probably not interested in art. Um, they're probably just interested in something else. You're putting your finger on, you know, one thing that I've always struggled with is that, you know, the, historically, if we look at history, art history is marked by 
the trajectory of various movements. And then when you're mentioning the buzz, I'm trying to think that, you know, how do you, how do you distinguish between, between, you know, a short-term fad and something that is more meaningful and durable that's likely to last? Well, you can't really. I mean, that's the, in a way you'll, you, 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 you probably didn't know that you were in the middle of the surrealist movement when you were a surrealist. Um, you probably didn't know that you were a futurist when you were a futurist. I mean, these things are retrospective to a certain extent and their importance, um, you know, in terms of art history, uh, let's say in the course of the 20th century, we, you know, was established with uh, retrospection and with uh, some hindsight. What I would tend to say is that when there's buzz around something, uh, it's not necessarily a sign of anything apart from the fact that people tend to they tend to converge people, you know, a buzz is created by a number of people doing the same thing and believing the same thing and being consensual. Uh, uh, consensus is by no means a great sign of good art or of lasting value. Uh, it tends to be the contrary because when people converge towards a point, those people also tend to get bored and they move on. And so the buzz moves, you know, buzz by definition moves on. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a, you know, what one tends to want to do is to kind of look at, you know, what is the longevity of an artist? So when as a, de as a, as a, as a gallerist, the, the artist that we worked with, particularly, it's particularly true of painters, um, what you're trying to do is keep the market, keep the primary market stable, um, uh, and keep the growth of primary market prices as stable as possible and is growing, growing, you know, at a kind of very shallow curve. Um, what you can't control is the secondary market, except that you can do that by only selling primary market works to people that you believe in and that you trust and that um, who seem to have a long-term commitment either to that artist or to that medium. Um, so that you don't put works in the hands of what we call flippers. So that- Very interesting. So that those- suddenly appear on the market. And because there is, let's say, a, a heavy demand on the primary market, this thing goes to auction for 10 grand and it achieves 350 grand, which means that everyone you've sold to on the primary market is kind of going, hmm, maybe I should sell this. And, and that's how you create this kind of distortion between the primary and the secondary market. And it's how you can really kill a career. Could you take us through um, your, you know, your thinking and your process around how you would go about building an art collection? Sure. Well, I, I mean, it would start with, um, it would start with, I guess, a very deep conversation with the person um, who I was dealing with. And so, you know, who, who what, what are their intentions? What are their long to short term and long term objectives? So, you know, collections. It's a, it's a very over, overused word. Um, what's a collection? What does it mean? And what is a collector? Um, what does that mean? And how do you define that? At the, at the first degree, so to speak, you could, you could say that buying a few things for your house, um, is that collecting or is that decorating? Uh, those are two different things. There's nothing wrong with buying things for your house. Buy, you can buy great things for your house. Um, you can also build a, a collection which is, uh, has, the, has a kind of legacy intention. So are you building uh, a group of objects of value to pass them down to your children? That's a totally different kind of objective. And are, or are you building a collection to make it into a kind of special asset class as part of your portfolio that you want to 
uh, milk somehow, or uh, I don't know what your word is, but you want to basically um, make it make it, you know, increase in value. You know, some of these most collections are a kind of mixture, to be honest. And so it would be to establish, first of all, the intent um, on the part of the collector. Uh, it would also be to to what extent, you know, uh, because I think collections are really, really interesting when they reflect the person um, who is collecting. So what is the path of that person's life? Um, where have they lived? Who are they? What culture are they from? How do they live? Um, do they travel a lot? Do they see a lot of the world? Uh, are they interested in a particular medium? Um, so, you know, the, so so it would be to sort of understand in a, in a way the kind of um, whether they're interested in collecting works from, let's say, a particular region. Uh, so let's say they were Middle Eastern um, that does, you know, a, a broad collection with a kind of focus on the Middle East make sense for them. Um, uh, do they are, are they interested, as I said, in a particular medium? Are they very do they like do they value only wall-based work like there are a lot of people who don't understand that something that you plug in uh is a work of art uh people really fall at that at that hurdle a lot um do they have a lot of space and do they want to live with their works uh or do they want to keep them in storage do they have a lot of houses different houses so could you create different collections for different spaces do they want to collect only contemporary or do they want to mix it up um, there's so many different vectors. So one would do a sort of conversation, have a conversation about um, about all of those things and and also understand to what extent they are familiar with uh, the act of looking. Um, because when you're when you're not and you don't you don't have, I guess, a, a habit or a you don't you don't have a lot of experience in going into galleries and looking at them. And these could be commercial galleries, or they could be uh, they could be institutions, or they could even be auction houses. Um, to tr to train the eye to look and to see, and to not immediately switch into that thing of going, "Can I buy it? What? How much is it? I want it." Um, is is a particular thing. So I would tend to, with collectors, um, uh, not let them buy anything for a while. Uh, depending on their degree of experience, and um, and to go with them and look at and look at commercial galleries and and look at um, collections, exhibitions, and and to kind of really understand the difference between something that you can appreciate and something that you want to own, because they're very different things. And um, and often the things that you first see um, means that the going back to what we were saying earlier, the work is more an answer than a question. The ones that it's usually the, the one that you're not you're that sort of slightly confuses you that probably is the better work of art because it's it's leaving you in that kind of in the questioning of what it is and what it represents and what it reminds you of and so on. Um, and I think to me the most important thing is is to always buy the best to always buy the, the best artist you can afford and to always buy the best work of that artist that you can afford or that you can find. So that's key. Not to buy, not to buy a kind of slightly, you know, slightly second-rate work by uh, an artist who's really happening. It's a really bad idea. So you know, it's a slow process, and um, and it's a very personal thing, very personal process. And you have to let collectors express themselves, uh, make mistakes, 
um, do what they want to a certain extent. And all we can do is kind of guide them towards making good decisions. And the decision is always theirs. Interesting. I mean, what, what I'm getting from this is there's, uh, you know, there's this distinction between building an art collection versus potentially building an art portfolio as an, as an art investor. Focusing specifically on the portfolio side of things, how would one go about constructing an art portfolio for, for, for that sort of end goal? When we're trying to build portfolios of financial assets, we're looking for specific complementary features to make sure that we're not over-concentrating or getting that diversification. Is it, is it similar when, when constructing an art portfolio? Are you looking for common themes, diversification, et cetera? I, I, as I don't come from the financial world, I, don't, I can't answer that question in that com- comparative way. But what I can say is, um, is, again, is this a long-term or short-term thing? Uh, you know, and what is the, the exit strategy? What is the exit, you know, what is the period that you're talking about? Um, uh, uh, I think that uh, there are some, at the moment, there are obviously some key things that are happening in the art market. One of them, you know, I, I would say it's tending towards the extreme conservatism. Uh, it tends to anyway, but, um, but particularly when there's a lot of money involved, uh, which there is at the moment, there's a huge amount of money in the art market. Um, it tends towards what I would call safe things. And safe things at the moment are, number one is painting over any other medium. Uh, uh, Number two is um, uh, women, so female, painters particularly. The other thing is um, diversity. So if you look at the if you look at the number of African American artists who are at the moment at the very 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 kind of top end of the market, um, it, it, it's it's it was unimaginable ten years ago, unimaginable. So that's a huge huge thing. I would make sure that you buy uh, from a, a small number of extremely good galleries that you trust. I would say like two or three or four. Uh, and that you only really focus on um, the work that uh, you have decided to collect. So to create a sort of, you see, on the whole, you won't sell your collection as a collection. What you'll do is you'll sell these these works individually. I mean, unless you build a world-class collection, um, in which case that's a whole different thing, but that takes a lifetime. Uh, If you were doing, let's say, over a 10-year period, you probably would decide on a you know, on a, uh, on, a, on a kind of typology. And you would focus on getting um, 10 works, 20 works, 30 works um, that were the best representatives of whatever that category you decided to focus on. And like that, you, you, you can actually do it without, um, you know, you become very good very quickly. You become in the know very quickly when you focus. And, and, and it also means that those, those uh, gallerists uh, uh, are, uh, you, you understand where you can get the best work. So from whom, and you, you, you become part of the sort of inner circle. Um, and this is of course, if the gallerist believes that you have some kind of skin in the game, which is not just financial. So, um, you know, if, if you're building, a, let's say a collection over 20 years, uh, that doesn't make you a flipper. Um, but if you're building a collection to, to sell it over uh, five years, three years, uh, it puts you in a pretty ropey category in terms of getting the best works from a, from a, from a gallerist on the primary market. So, you, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of, um, it's a kind of a, it's a process and it's a, it's a, it's a game to a certain extent. Um, and, um, 
and 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 there are no guarantees of anything is what i would say if i'm to step back and think just in terms of people who think in terms of you know financial returns you know you can google art investing and you see all of these all of these actually investment vehicles so people who are not looking uh, at necessarily building building a either a, a collection or or a or an art portfolio however you want to phrase it but but rather people who are looking at some sort of investment vehicle um people tend to look at you know all of these various indices of historic art prices but as an analyst i i find that very difficult conceptually because because I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the problem with art indices is that art price indices is, is that you're essentially comparing the performance of the best of the past while, while your choices are the average of the present. What I'm trying to say is that if you're trying to approach the contemporary art market, you're essentially looking at who's prominent now, some of which, as you said, might be a, a, a durable buzz, uh, or some of it will not, right? But when we're looking at, at indices of historic performance of art, really what survives yeah. is, is the most valuable. So, so these, these indices are, by definition, misleading. I, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think that one thing that I... Uh, uh, I should say, is that there's no such thing as the art market. There are within millions of different markets. So you could go, there's, you know, of course, there's old, the old master market. There is the, uh, there is the impressionist market. There is, you know, the early 20th century master's market. And it goes on and on and on. So you can't look at indices at all if they're pretending to uh, try to give you any idea of what could possibly be going on now or in the future. Um, especially if they're all lumped together. It doesn't mean it's meaningless. Um, but there are, um, you know, there are art funds out there who basically um, invest in, uh, in art on behalf of collectors, of, 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 uh, of kind of groups of collectors. And they, you know, they do extremely well in certain sectors. They do okay in other sectors. Sometimes they lose money, but, you know, on the whole, they are, you know, and they have perks like you can borrow the works or you can have the works for a certain amount of time, you know, the works that are owned by the fund. I mean, there are all sorts of things like that. I mean, it's not very interesting. Um, but, or maybe it is to someone who's, I guess, comes, you know, with a primary interest in the financial return of those works. But um, and I guess it, you get to know the world a little bit because, you you know, you, they probably invite you to art fairs and tell you what the Venice Biennial is about and tell you what to like and what to look at and what to care about. But I don't think it's really um, the most satisfying way of um, uh, of getting a kind of involvement in, in, in it. NFTs and digital arts have been making, you know, news headlines in recent months. We've seen a lot of speculation on prices and a wide range of influential people getting involved. How do you see developments here influencing the many traditional art markets, as you say? Well, I think it's fascinating uh, and kind of thrilling time. I can tell you that, number one. Um, Number two, so I have a, a very long-standing knowledge and experience in the digital um, art world, so to speak, because I represented one of its pioneers for 12 years, uh, and I still work with him very closely. So 
Um, so the world of the digital, I understand both conceptually and financially. Um, and I can tell you that it was a desert. Uh, it, it's it, people have been. It's an incredibly, incredibly important part of um, or medium. Uh, it's a kind of people think of it as a kind of extension of film. It's absolutely not that at all. Uh, it's not even an extension of photography. It's a it's a very, very distinct world, uh, and it is conceptually rich. It has um, it has a lot to say about the world that we live in, um, and I won't go on about it. But I'm a big fan. Um, it's impossible to sell. Uh, it's not impossible to sell because I've sold quite a lot of quite a few of them, but uh, it's very, very difficult to sell. And so you have to understand you have to really get the collector to um, to, to, to be absolutely sort of in the conceptual um, questions that are raised by the medium. Um, I can tell you that I've sold. So I worked with John Gerard, the great um, the great digital artist who's uh, Irish born and lives in Vienna. And, um, you know, we have sold major works to major museums and major private collectors um, over the last 10 years. And um, I would say that there's, you know, for, he's had one work at auction, uh, which did, I think it was listed at 10 or 12 or something, and it went to 150 or something, which wasn't, wasn't a bad result at all. But in a way, what the person was buying in that case, because of the way it was presenting, is that they were buying a sculpture, which had a bit of moving image in it. Um, what's happening with NFTs now is that, is that the world is starting to, to, to buy the digital image. And um, that's a really, really interesting development. And it's not dissimilar, uh, or, or the kind of issues there are not dissimilar to the issues that were raised by photography at the time, the issues that were raised or collecting photography at the time, which is authenticity, how many of there are in the, you know, wh what, is a, what is a vintage print and so on and so forth. The, the problems also that were posed by collecting film which I was very involved in as well um, through Steve and through a lot of other artists whose works were editioned works. Uh, so what is an original, how do I know that the piece of celluloid that I have that is you know, edition one of four of a Steve McQueen film, uh, A, what do I do with it? How do I store it? How do I know it's really the real thing? And so on and so forth. So there were questions of authenticity that related to that, um, which we solved in very simple ways. Uh, it's called a, a certificate uh, of authenticity. It's very perfectly simple. Um, but this NFT thing is really, really, really interesting. And so, of course, I'm no expert, but um, but uh, I am, like everyone else, fascinated by it. And it sort of uh, landed like a sort of um, a catastrophic um, uh, a piece of moon rock, sort of through the, uh, the 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 Christie's auction, of course, of the the Beeple's piece. And, um, you know, there were rumblings uh, around it. And some people have been involved in this space for quite a long time. Um, but it, it became, you know, public uh, kind of, it, it entered the public consciousness at that moment because of the $69 million it achieved. Now, um, I have big, big issues about the people work, big, big issues. Um, uh, apart from the fact that it's uh, really, really terrible. Uh, from an aesthetic point of view, I mean, like seriously, <laughs> terrible. It's terrible times five thousand because there were five thousand of them in that in that work. Um, I think it also poses a lot of issues of, around um, 
you know, around the auction house and the, the role of the auction house in bringing this to the market. Um, I mean, it it, uh, it looks like, you know, one of these kind of magic moments of guys, oh my God, you know, how did this happen? Isn't this incredible? In fact, I'm sure that it was a kind of long-standing, incredibly complex, like all magic tricks, um, series of manipulations so that this thing just sort of appeared and found its buyer, uh, in fact, found two buy two potential buyers at that level. Um, but but you know what what is good is that these things are kind of create these giant sort of um, apertures, and it created a giant aperture in a completely and wholly new market, uh, with a whole new set of people and a whole and pe by people I mean both the creators and the quote unquote collectors, um, and that's what's thrilling. Because uh, the art world is kind of, you know, it's it's spiraling in its its um, how could I say it's it's very um, uh, solipsistic, and it's very self-referential in all sorts of ways. The world it occupies is um, is is um, you know is very self-regarding. The people are the same always. The artists are always the same. So there's a point at which one really felt one is heading towards the vanishing point of of uh, of the art world, and somehow this has given it, I think, a sort of kick so to speak, where it's like, okay, well, what is value? And who are the people who are making these, uh, who are, who's making the money now? So I would say that the, you know, the positive things is, um, is that, isn't it amazing that someone from their bedroom can, uh, who's probably been making graphics for a second rate band, because that's all they could find to do um, with their work. So being paid nothing can suddenly continue to do that sort of thing and uh, and and then take it to a market, which is, you know, a nifty gateway or a super rare or something like that, and and transact directly with a group of people that they've never met or that they don't know um, and make 90% of the profit. I mean, that is remarkable. Uh, and that's something really to be celebrated when you think of how many intermediaries there are between an artist and the sale of a work or the money from a sale of the work of, of, of a work of art. It's it's um, you know, it's it's a it's a game changer. So that I, I really celebrate. Um, and I also celebrate the the the, the radical transparency of, of 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 the NFT market. So um, you know what it costs, you know uh, or what it was put up for, what it was sold for, who made the money. Uh, and then you can also track it on the secondary market and you can see what the aggregate uh, of this work, uh, you know, what it makes on the secondary market, knowing that the artist is also making, actually they're making 99% on the primary market and then they're making 90% on all the resales. Now that is, you know, it's, it, it, it's just, it's sort of mind blowing. Um, uh, so I, I really think that that's healthy. Uh, I would say that what's not healthy is that um, the work on the whole is extremely second rate. Um, now, I know that it's probably unfair to sort of apply the, the canons of, uh, you know, of the 20th century, the whole of the 20th century and sort of burden these poor people with all of those uh, paradigms. But, um, but on the whole, it's, it's really not good. Now there, so the, and there's, and the other thing is that there's a huge amount of the not good stuff. 
uh, enormous. I would say that 99% of the, of the NFTs that you will see on any marketplace is not good. And so it, it, what I believe is that over time, the uh, the gateways who are these, you know, these markets, whether they be super rare or, or nifty gateway or other, um, will start to become more discriminating, um, I hope. And, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully, uh, possibly show less and, you know, I, I guess discriminate early on so that, you know, it's very difficult for anyone to look through a million works of art. I mean, it's just never going to happen. So um, I think that that's one of the problems is quality. Number two is quantity. Number three, of course, is, is the question of, you know, what is the environmental impact of all of this and whether the environmental impact of it will hamper the market uh, and whether it, whether it will be an obstacle to the market really kind of um, continuing, continuing to flourish. So that's a big one. And it doesn't, you know, it's just something that, that, that needs to be looked at very carefully because it, it's, um, you know, it's also very interesting to look, at, to look at the environmental impact in context when you think that no one has ever um, questioned the environmental impact of streaming. Uh, of what Netflix represents, of what it is, you know, what it is when you watch a film, uh, and you know, or, or what is the environmental impact of data mining, which you people in the financial world do a lot of. Uh, no one's ever questioned that. So, you know, it would be very interesting to look at comparatives um, and and to kind of go well. You know, there are these poor guys who, for the first time in their lives, uh, are making a little bit of money, and this has become this great cri de guerre of you know you're 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 going to suffocate the world with your um, with your CO two emissions. So uh, I think it's uh, you know all of this is um, all of this is is the stuff of uh, I guess a um, a burgeoning something. You know, it's the it's the kind of baby steps of something which I don't think is going away. But it's um, it's obviously messy uh, as it starts, and I think it will find its order. You're basically considering that the NFTs as as a different market segment within the art market. That is is a bit different, I think, from the way some people are talking about it, which is that you know taking the advantages you just mentioned. So one, the radical, what you call the radical transparency. The second is what you refer to these artist resale rights. So, so the artist is making money with a sell-on of, of that piece of work pretty easily. Um, these are things that are pretty attractive from an artist's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Is there no room for, for the NFTs to somehow they become more as part of the the railing, if you want, the, the rail tracks for the art market, for the for the for the conventional art market, for the physical art market, as as just a you know smart contracts and, and nothing more. Well, I think I think um, that's a very good point. So what I would say is um, that's a complex question. So let me just structure it in my head. So. Uh, uh, if, if you think of these two markets somehow coming together in a, you know, in a, in a coherent way or in a, in a way that is a positive, definitely anything that is not a, or even, you know, any work of art, if it's, you know, if it's certificate of authenticity is registered on the blockchain, then it becomes, um, you know, it, it, it becomes something which is of public record. And uh, obviously the, the radical transparency thing that I brought up earlier, is um, manifest uh, throughout the what do we call the conventional art market, and it particularly helps when it comes to 
complicated works of art in terms of collecting such as film and video and uh, simulation and so on. So, so in that sense, um, uh, you know, I think it is a, it a beneficial thing from a collector point of view. But, but you know, it, when you're saying a different market, seg a different segment of the art market, um, do I believe that convent or the existing collectors of art are throwing themselves at collecting NFTs? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, I think most of them think that this is they don't even know what to think, and nor are they particularly interested. Um, and so in the Venn diagram of, uh, the, of the art market as it exists, plus the NFT market, there may be this overlap um, of uh, a few artists who are of renown who have cracked it, possible. And there are a few examples already of, um, uh, of artists that we knew before that have made NFTs that are okay and that have sold okay um but they certainly haven't exceeded their prices in you know what i would call the in 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 the in the fiat market um there are equally a few um nft artists who are nft natives who have never existed in the art market who have sold works to uh normal collectors or old-fashioned collectors or through um, uh, old-fashioned art market kind of outlets who have done well, no question. But they're tiny. They're really, really tiny at the moment. And I think the big mistake uh, uh, is, is to kind of imagine that, you know, because someone paints a painting and it's an image, it's two-dimensional image, that if you were to somehow digitize that or make it exist somehow in the NFT world, that it would somehow in any way mimic the value of the real thing or that it would uh, perform in any predictable way um, in the NFT world. I think, I think these things are completely unrelated. And I think what's to me very interesting is the demographics of the people who are collecting NFTs in terms of age, in terms of regionality, in terms of almost everything. Um, they are really a completely different um, group of people and they're thinking in a totally different way. And they are, they are entirely uninterested or un, how could I say burdened by, um, uh, I guess, any of the concerns uh, that we would have in the conventional art market. Fair enough, fair enough. I guess if you're thinking, you know, I think the demographic question is a very important one because, because the art market is one where, you know, people put attach, you know, priorities to different things and, and, you know, certain parts of the world, art may well be about what's provocative, as, as you explained, uh, versus, you know, other collectors who may just value technique, in fact, and, and, and craftsmanship somehow, right? Virtuosity is a very overrated. Um, uh, uh, it's very overrated kind of thing. Right, but 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 for that segment, the, the NFT world is something that 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 will not resonate. Well, it depends what kind of virtuosity you're interested in. You know, true, uh, if, true. if you're able to make something look incredibly, incredibly precisely real, uh, and it is a simulation, um, then people get quite thrilled by that. You know, it's it's like CGI taken to its extreme, and people get that's the equivalent of what I would call 19th century academic painting. 
But one thing that I would like to say is that, and the thing's a little bit um, that's a bit troublesome in the uh, in the NFT thing is that it is absolutely pitting value against content. And in fact, it's 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 if you look at an at a crypto wallet, this one, MetaMask, for example, if you look at Met, the MetaMask wallet, basically it has value and it has artist and they're they're basically kind of pitted against each other now this is the first time that has been done in a sort of declared way and uh what i find um and i find that in a way i find it refreshing because actually it sits under the surface and sat under the surface throughout this kind of expansion of the 20th of the of the contemporary art in the last 20 years it it really has been sitting there and i pose myself the question of you know is a damien Hirst spot painting not an nft Anyway, you know, it is a token of value. There are, I think, something like 1,500 of them in Korea alone. And do, do, does every collector of a spot painting by Damien Hirst kind of go, well, I really prefer this one to that one because, you know, this one means mean so much more to me. Exit. They are, they are, in fact, indicators of value, the tokens of value that you put up on your wall. And you could argue that, you know, that so is a Picasso, uh, so is a Richter, and so is a Jeff Koons, and so is a, you know, they're, indi they're, they're, they're indicators of, um, of value and of wealth. So I'm not sure that the NFT world is that different. It's just happening in a different, in a different milieu. On that note, it's always a pleasure to hear your, uh, to hear your thoughts, Martin. It's been, it's been refreshing and very, very interesting. Uh, a pleasure and anytime. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.